Hi, this is Legends of Tabletop, and I'm Laird Barron, horror writer. so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to spend with me and talk with me about Blood Standard and any other projects that you may have in the pipeline for us. Um, what would you what would you care to share about Blood Standard and its uh, critical reception? Well, thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed uh, our previous conversation. So it's really mm -hmm. nice to be back. And um, actually, I just got back uh, from my latest uh, trip to to go promote the book, uh, I was in Arizona and Texas, and then a couple of weeks ago I was in uh, uh, New York City and then Providence, Rhode Island, and so it's been pretty, you know, nothing nothing major, but definitely, uh, you know, there was some traveling involved, and it's been received really well. Uh, I've gotten a lot. You know, I, one of the things that I wondered uh, about is how my existing fan base would receive the book. You know, because part of the idea was was to uh, branch out from kind of the the, the micro genre that I've been working in, you know, a subgenre of horror, uh, which is cosmic yes. horror, uh, and do something that's more traditional, you know, and, and a much larger fan base. Crime has a huge uh, established fan base; it has a rich tradition, uh, and a lot of people that won't read horror will read will read crime. I, that's one thing I have noticed when I say they're like, "Well, what do you write?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm writing crime novels." I get a lot less. Well, what does that even mean than I do <laughs> if I say when I was writing, uh, <clears throat> when I was trying to talk about my short horror collections, mm -hmm. you, you would have to go into a lot of um, description about exactly what it is that you do. So that that's been kind of fun. You know, it's not that I don't write horror anymore, but right now I'm writing crime, and so talking about it, I've noticed there's a big difference. It's a, it's a lot. There's a lot more uh, a broader reception. You know, people are more broadly receptive to it. But my but my current fan base has been really. You know, there's a few people that are grumpy because I'm writing something different. But the overall uh, reception has been really um, gratifying. It's re it's really doing well. Absolutely. I mean, I see there are a lot of uh, of tenants that follow through in the genre change, even though the title of the genre is different. There's still a great deal of suspense elements that are involved with crime. And uh, and I mean, I, I, I didn't have so much as a dark of a suspense issue with Blood Standard as some of your other items, but it was still there. Um, and uh, do, do you find that there, there were many of the same tenants that followed you through this genre change? Yeah, right. I, I, actually, yes. I wrote an essay about it um, for, uh, what is it, Crime Reads, which is a newer, um, it's, it's associated with uh, Lit Reactor okay. or Lit Hub. Um, but basically, I talked about how noir, crime, and horror are, are essentially related in a lot of ways, there's a there's a big overlap, and a lot of my horror, you know, I've been doing this for about 18 years, and I would say a, a great percentage of the stuff that I've written uh, in the weird and horror genres also touch, you know, crime figure, crime and noir, and, and sometimes mystery or even thriller have always been sort of a bedrock. I'll start off with a mystery story, or I'll start off with sort of a quasi thriller, and then the horror kind of comes in later, the supernatural horror, I should say. The big difference with I think blood standard uh, is really just that I strip out the supernatural component. It's still, and, and it's a little more accessible, you know, with some of my short fiction, I'm not worried if somebody gets it. I'm not really, you know, I, you know, you, there's certain things you can do in a, in a short story, especially if it's part of a, a broader collection that you can, you can take certain risks or, 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 or defy audience expectations in a way that, really won't affect the sales necessarily it's a it's all you're already playing to a very small crowd so either they're with you or they're not with you yeah so, and those anthologies are themed as well so you have 
that whole Venn diagram to draw upon. Yeah, and then do and then do something crazy crazy if you want to. So so I would say that it's not that there aren't risks. There's always risk when you write for you know because a lot of the people that I write for. Uh, they are commercial venues. Ellen Datlow doesn't do Baroque little little niche anthologies. She does big old New York anthologies. The, the, but the point is, though, but even within the within the traditional confines of a genre, short fiction, you can get away with stuff because the risk, basically the the stakes are a lot lower as far as the audience, you know, maintaining an audience uh, is concerned. But so Blood Standard, um, is very much it's very much me it's just that it's it's me writing a more mainstream novel it's a you know there's certain rules that i get to play with but there are traditions and conventions within within the crime and mystery and and war genres that i i adhere to and then my the fun part of it for me though is is to basically have that skeleton but then take it in little subtle directions uh that might not be what people would expect very, very true. Um, now, diving into if we can talk about Isaiah Coleridge a little bit, I sure. really appreciated the depth and the amount of work that you had put into building him. Now, do you have any preset uh, guidelines like for, for a character outline in general when you approach character making and character creation? No. I don't. Okay. And I would say, and, and I know we're probably going to end up talking about old Damon Knight because we, we were talking about him in the past. I'm, I'm sort of um, personally, this is, this is, this is for speaking for myself. I'm not, I'm not about prescriptive advice. I think it has its place because some people really do function better uh, with, you know, uh, with a, with a rule set. Right. I mean, that's just we're all different. When I studied martial arts, I learned completely differently than almost anybody else in the dojo. And there were broad types. People kind of fall into broad categories. Are you auditory? Are you kinesthetic? Do you require, you know, are you a, a verbal learner? That type of thing. Are you tactile? And we each had our we even though we fit into broader archetypes, we each had our own different way of learning. And I feel like writing is that way, too. Some people. I think, and maybe, maybe if I tried it uh, more often than I have, or maybe if I stuck to it for a while, maybe I would like to have a character, kind of like an archetypal character outline. I know other people do stuff like that. With me, though, with almost all of my writing, it's all—it's always intuitive. I write what sort of uh, comes comes out of me. I dream about it. Like Coleridge didn't just happen overnight. I've, I've been writing for many years and he's sort of a synthesis of a lot of the tough guys. Cause that's one of the branches of writing that I do. I have the Baron tough guy story and uh, I've had my Yakuza enforcers. I've had Irish mafia mobsters. I've had Pinkerton agents who might as well have been criminals the way they behaved. I've written about NSA agents. I've read about counter, um, uh, industrial spies, counter spies, mm -hmm. you know, all of them have broad, you could broadly say they all have similar jobs, but but I found there's so many nuances between the characters. You know, even though, even two leg breakers, you know, like I said, I've written about the Irish mobster, and then you have Coleridge here, who's not nothing to do with that, you know, uh, 1920s crowd um, or, or the ethnicity or anything else. And yet they do the same job, and yet they have all these nuances that set them apart. And so what I, what I did when I fashioned Coleridge is, I decided to make it easy on myself. I could have written any character, but I wanted to write about a tough guy. I wanted to write kind of an archetypal hard-boiled character. Uh, and he's the guy that showed up for the job. And what it turns out is, is he's sort of a synthesis. Like, like he's the best tough guy I know how to write at this point. I kind of take all these other guys that I have, uh, and women, uh, the old Jessica Mace is a, is a tough oh, woman. Yes. Um, but the point is all these, I, I don't even think of them in terms of gender. I, I kind of have a tendency to, to think of them like tough guy to me is like, TG capitalized TM, like a, sort of a mindset. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I've taken all these, these people in these, re, in these related professions. And I said, you know, what's the best at this point in my writing career, what is the best job I could do with taking the best parts of all these characters and doing something entertaining? Cause that, that was also the thing is I wanted the Coleridge novels to be quite serious and dark, but also you're kind of entertained by what the guy, how the guy 
communicates with you. You smile a little bit, maybe mm -hmm. grimly, but there's, you know, there's, there, there's a little element of humor there as well. And kind of a, I don't want to say meta, but there is sort of, there's almost a meta element to the, some of the stuff going on with Coleridge. There is, I mean, I'm, I just, I can't help, but call back to his, uh, you almost pulled tricks there that, echo of Zelazny with the um, mythological references that you make because that immediately calls an image to mind for the readers that have been exposed to those things before. Yes, that's a good point. And you know something? That's one thing that hasn't occurred to me because I'm a huge, as I've said many times, so I actually a lot of my early fiction is memetics, you know, that I didn't publish, you know, like when I was a kid uh, and a teenager. I actually had this one really great story, but it's too close to Zelazny. It would actually have to be a Zelazny parody. It's like, it's about 40,000 words long and I've, it's not even done. But I set it aside because I said, you know, it's too close to Zelazny. And so that, but it taught me something. I learned how, uh, kind of like in Finding Forrester when, um, the main character, Old Forrester, tells the kid, "Just use my, use me as your training wheels. Then you move on from there." I kind of feel like there's there was some truth to that. I'm sure that was cribbed from some other author telling, in the real world, telling some other author in the real world, "Hey, do this." But I hadn't thought of that in in, in uh, context of of Coleridge. That totally makes sense um, because I think Zelazny is such a massive influence on me. It would be impossible for him not to be lurking in my subconscious when I'm working on stuff. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, it's, it's perfectly normal because as we write and I, I have not written that much at all, but I know that what I spit out is a combination of everything that I yep. have taken in. So yeah. Uh, oh, what else? Oh yeah. Structure. Uh, an exercise in completion and beautifully simple examples of points set forth in a book that you had recommended to me. Um, that's, that's all I'm going to say about your use of structure and blood standard. So well, thank it, you. It I, is beautiful. I mean, I, I gave you a much more eloquent message earlier today. I, I really appreciate it. I, I got to tell you, writing, you know, we go back to being accessible, writing a commercial novel, and it's hard. It's, it's really difficult. You know, people mock things they don't like or the things they don't do. I, I, have, I think it's really easy to, to, I think it's really easy to try to put down commercial writing until you do it yourself. You do try, attempt it yourself. It is very, very difficult to make something look, you know, to flow really quickly to not digress, because I love to digress. I like it when it's difficult. I like to basically go, nah, I figure it out or don't figure it out. You really, to a large degree, that's not what you want to do with, especially with a crime novel. Uh, there can be mysteries. There can be things to think about later. I think that's wonderful. But you don't, you know, you the mystery shouldn't be confusing any more than, you know, than it needs to be to the reader. And uh, trying to craft, a, the, basically trying to craft something that where you leave, people wanting to go to the next chapter like immediately and find out what it is without it being rep repetitive. It's all very difficult. These are all, all these different strategies that I'm still learning. I've written the follow-up to this novel now and I turned it in. So I felt like this novel taught me a lot, but even after finishing the second one, I said, you know, I've got a ways to go before I really can even, you know, cl even claim to say, okay, I've, I'm kind of getting this figured out. I have many miles to go. Okay, so you you had just shared with us that you've turned in the second one. Now, when could we, the public, expect to see this out? I'm just speculating, but I would assume sometime, you know, early to mid next uh, 2019 is my okay. guess. So I haven't, I have not received the the actual date, but it, but we've gone through pretty 99% of the process for getting it ready. It's been copy edited. I've seen proofs, you know, actual layout pages. And, and there could be some more stuff. But I, I would assume that it's going to be listed on Amazon in the next month or two. So we'll, we'll know then. Excellent. Excellent. Now, working with a larger publication house versus an indie publication, what would you say the major differences are 
drawing from your past experiences. What's really, you know, it's really interesting. It actually, working with Sarah Minnick, she's my book editor uh, and the publicists over there and just the team in general, you know, the, the GP Putnam team. And then to even go further, you know, to dive into this is I'm not just dealing with them, but, you know, they're owned by Penguin Random House. So I'm dealing with people from, uh, I assume, from the broader, comp the bit larger company. It's been wonderful. But what it made me realize is that a lot of my fiction isn't uh, exclusively from indie presses that you know, I start thinking about going, yeah, you know, Nightshade was actually a lot bigger had a lot more presence in New York than I thought. And especially like my last book with them, uh, The Beautiful Thing, uh, Skyhorse had taken over and Skyhorse did like $20 million the year before uh, in sales. So they're not huge, but they're, they're not a small press by any means. And so okay. I realized I've actually had experience with decent sized presses. And then of course, okay. Ellen Datlow, Tor Books, Daw. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes it's Solaris, sometimes it's these really nice independent houses, but we, you know, um, uh, uh, Dark, Dark, uh, was it Dark Horse, um, St. Martin's, you know, big, uh, big play Harper Collins. I was, I was working with, um, I want to say it was Christopher Golden. So I, I actually, uh, or Simon and Schuster, the point is, um, I've actually, I realized that in the past, on a, it was much smaller projects, my piece of it, but I had been working with these big houses all along. So I actually have had quite a bit of experience working with all the way from two people working on your book in a basement to, you know, seven or eight people on an, on an average, you know, a marketing team trying to decide where, where you should go for a book tour, not to mention all the people involved with the book itself. And my experience here has been one of my favorites I've ever had. You know, you hear all these stories and I, I assume that everybody's path through publishing being different they would all have different experiences so far this is this is among this is in my top three or four experiences i've ever had i hesitate to say it's my favorite because i don't want to you know insult anybody but it's it's way up there i have been treated really well uh very professionally and i gotta tell you you know they've made a really strong effort to promote the book and to support me and the book and uh, i really i've enjoyed it i i I feel like I've also feel like we're working with uh, a big time editor who, you know, big five editor on a commercial novel. I got free education in how to write uh, this type of a book, which is, you know, you go pay a lot of money at places to at workshops to learn this. I, I, I know quite a bit. And so I was in a position to know just how little I know <laughs> about this. So this has been, I'm pretty enthusiastic about, if nothing else, if, you know, if we didn't do any more books, I feel like I really, not only did I, did I benefit from obviously having these books out there, now people can read them, a much, much bigger audience than I've ever had so far, from what I can tell, you know, by magnitudes. But I also am walking away with um, a lot more knowledge in a, in a really interesting sense, not just how to do a commercial novel, but just how to write for a larger audience in general. Like I could take the knowledge that I've gained and go, no, I'm going to write this literary historical novel that's very dense and very, you know, you, you have to you basically pick your way through it and reread parts of it. I feel like um, my editor and her team have taught me how to probably be more successful if I ever do that. So, okay. Yeah, it's good. Definitely. Um... Oh gosh, what was I going to say? Um, I loved how you pretty much, well, I, I don't want to lay out any spoilers, I guess. Right. If, if that would. So, man, I have this whole line of questions and, and it's like, well, if I do ask them, then spoiler, ah, <sighs> man. Going back and I'm looking at, at your structure and and I mean again there are some points that I, I want to ask and again with the spoilers. Right. Speaking of spoilers, have you ever spoiled your morning coffee by not setting the coffee pot? Don't let that happen again. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let that happen again. Now, uh, you can get your very own legendary brew from the Legends of Tabletop website. Just go up at the banner. Underneath the banner, you will see the section of legendary brew. And you can get your very own 
also from Birds of Feather Coffee Company. Com. Or there's a, bird, a group for every birdie, gather the flock and migrate on down to birdscoffeecompany.com. Again, that's birdscoffeecompany.com. And that was a brief word from our sponsors. Um, Very nice. So, um, what have you, have you been consuming any mass media lately? Before I... Well, actually, yes. But before I get to that, I was just going to say, we we're talking about Roger Zelazny. It occurred to yes. me. I've never read his, his because he, he wrote some crime novels. Uh, mm -hmm. I've never read those. I've read, a, I, he's one of my very favorite authors. And there's still a, there's still a few books of his that I haven't read. He had a, a pretty productive, you know, output, but he wrote some crime novels and I haven't read those, but I have read a couple things by uh, his son, Trent. And I would suggest you go out there and check Trent Zelazny out. He's got a whole, I don't know all his novels, but he's got a whole slew of them. But I highly recommend him just in general. Uh, I He was on a show on Mike on, on the Mike Davis uh, Lovecraft Easing podcast a couple of years ago, I believe. And I was on there briefly, you know, just a, a voice in the chorus. It was really neat talking to him. Tran is a really good guy, a really good writer. And he had these wonderful... Um, anecdotes about how his dad wrote uh, in the lonesome october i think is the one that we were talking about the halloween i remember theme. that yeah and it was just it was really neat listening to to his son talk about it but so i just want to throw him out there uh as far as uh mass stuff I, I i would highly recommend uh or not mass but like you know uh bigger publishing kind of stuff uh yeah. uh <laughs> is now um i have to say you know he's a good friend of mine but I think Stephen King agrees with me on this. So uh, I would read Paul Tremblay's latest novel, um, The Cabin at the End of the World. Yes. I think that's a must read. You know, the thing is, is that Paul Paul has been a must read kind of guy, an essential, as far as I'm concerned, he's been an essential author for years and he's finally getting his, his due. But I will say this to, especially to anybody who's like just hardcore into horror literature in general, you're only getting part of the story if you read uh, these three big novels that he's, you know, horror novels that he's released. Uh, what, Head Full of Ghosts, uh, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, and now Cabin at the End of the World. These are wonderful, but if you want the whole story, you need to go read uh, In the Meantime, which is a collection by Paul, or uh, Compositions for the Young and Old, or just start scrolling through some anthologies the last 10, 12 years. His short fiction could not be any d more different. That's that was something interesting. I and that's he was actually one of my models for try, not necessarily how to succeed, but like I just felt like he was a great model for someone who had transitioned from really head scratching niche horror and weird fiction on the short fiction scale, kind of like uh, postmodern stuff, very very complex stuff, to not giving it all up and and writing um, dumbed down commercial fiction but actually like bridging this, this somewhat literary but also really accessible like somehow finding a way to fuse those together you know uh and i i think he's like a, a model of that because he can write either way he, he can write these unbelievably bore you know a borges-esque narratives on the short level and he does the same thing he mixes crime and horror and things like that but you know you just get a completely different guy i mean you can you recognize him but it's a different. He wears a completely different hat when he writes, uh, feature you know feature length fiction, and I think it's just amazing. It's somebody that I'm. I look at what he's doing, and going, yeah, that's that's how you do this, because he does it in a way that doesn't compromise his artistic vision. I feel like he just he basically brings the the antipodes together enough that he can get a much bigger audience. Okay. I think that's I think it's very cool. I think you've just completed my to do list because I'm speaking with him in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, this, new, this newest one, I read it in manuscript. Um, and so I, I, have a, I have the hardcover sitting here, but I, so I don't know how, if he made many changes. I think what I read was pretty much, it had been edited, but it's brilliant. I mean, Paul, Paul's always brilliant. Um, and that's like the big mass market thing. I'm, another book that I've read, oh, I, don't, I was gonna wave it in front of the camera. Uh, it's by somebody uh, named T Thomas Pluck. And he's actually uh, we're friends on Facebook and whatnot, but it's a it's a revenge crime crime novel, and it's by Down and Out Books, so it's it's not from one of the huge presses. But I really I really like it. Um, I just finished that, and I started talking to people in New York, and you know, it's one of those deals where a lot of people know 
no Thomas Pluck. You know, he's he's basically, I think he's kind of in crime, like I've kind of been doing in horror. If you read a lot of crime, you know who Thomas Pluck is, kind of a thing. He may not he may not be sitting on a stage with Connolly, but that's just you know through no fault of his own. I mean, he you know is a great writer. Uh, and another one, um, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to get a hold of it, but I want to read um, She Rides Shotgun. Uh, by Jordan. Uh, I hear that's really good. He was working on um, uh, the, uh, they canceled it, but he was working on a pilot for um, LA Confidential that was going to be on CBS. Wow. So I just read that one. I just read, what I think his name is Jordan Harper. I just read uh, a little bit, you, you get on Amazon with the preview. It was like 10 pages, but it's, it's scintillating, just absolutely, you know, wonderful. So. Awesome. So how many, if you don't mind me asking, how many more entries can we expect of Isaiah Coleridge in the, in the series? If all, you know, it, it all, it all depends upon whether people want to read the book. So if enough people buy these two books and we won't know until we see the numbers, but I'm going to be positive and say, yeah, we're going to do more of them. And the question I've been asked repeatedly is, is it, would it be a series in perpetuity like Spencer, you know, if you were, you know, basically if the market bore 50 books, would you write 50 books? And the answer is no, it's a, it's a very much a finite series. I, I'm not quite sure what the number would be a dozen or fewer is, is kind of how I, so I, I kind of think of it as it's not quite a novel told in multiple parts, but, but it kind of is in some ways it's uh, I'm trying to reconstruct it in such a way that you could pick it up, pretty much anywhere in the series and enjoy it, but you would definitely get the full benefit if you read the whole thing. So what they're, what, what the structure basically is going to be is there's an overarching story, but the main story in each book will be the, the mystery, you know, the, the mystery of the week type of a thing, you know, is he looking for the girl in the first novel, the second novel, he's actually hunting a serial killer who everybody thought was dead. Um, or at least vanished. It was is, is an old. It would have to be very, very much a senior citizen, and either dead or out of commission, who somehow seems to be active again. Uh, and you know, and then so so each each novel would would basically have that kind of a mystery that's self-contained within the novel. And then there's <laughs> and then and, yeah, and then there and then there's going to be a developing um, plot basically more and more is revealed about Coleridge and the wider world as the series goes on. But I definitely, it's not something that I, I would want to see just go on and on in perpetuity. It's, it's something, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, you know, the, the, the mythological components or the legendary, the allusions to legendary uh, creatures and people are not, it's not an accident. I'm not trying to imply that it's going to delve into the supernatural explicitly, but just that I really like that that narrative arc the kind of the 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 hyper the hyper masculine uh kind of doomed it, 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 i would say greek almost like you know the greek tragedy but i but i i'm not confining myself to greek mythology it's world mythology there's beowulf in there there's maybe gilgamesh is in there there's other there's many other cultures and and sort of juxtapositions going on but they all have the thing in common where it's this archetype of the of the violent the violent masculine hero or at least uh, uh, macho, if nothing else, and sort of uh, how how this pattern is kind of like it, it kind of a descent into hell a lot of the time. Excellent. I also appreciated the. Uh, I, I could see definitely some parallels between Athena and his canine as well. Minerva, right? Minerva, yeah. Athena. You know, Athena's she's old. She's not doing all that well. I, I don't know if we talked about her the last time. I think we might have. It's one of those deals. She uh, she's sleeping on the floor over here. She's almost sixteen, and she's a big dog. You know, at her peak, she was about eighty pounds, all muscle. So she's like sixty pounds now. You know, she's she, she's old. She can barely. You know, she stumbles around and stuff. But I've been dealing with her getting old for a few years now, and uh, and then the last year and a half or so, she's been pretty. She's been doing okay, but she had bouts of illness. I thought I was going to lose her. And, you know, it's no accident. I've written about dogs a lot the last five or six years. Um, you know, Coleridge is one example, but I, I have a series of stories about a dog named Rex. Um, mm -hmm. 
And, and and Rex is kind of like Morcock's eternal champion, the recurring champion, or the you know the return, the basically eternal return. You know, he just it's it's always Rex, but it could be a Chihuahua in the story. It might be a Saint Bernard in the next, but they're all Rex in some in spirit. And um, yeah, I've written a lot of. Matter of fact, when I was in um, Providence recently, I was there. I talked about Blood Standard, but because it was a Lovecraft uh, reading, I read a Lovecraftian story, and it was all about a guy kind of survivor's guilt about a guy who lost his dog when he escaped uh escaped the clutches of a nefarious cult and so i've been dealing i've been dealing with it i've been dealing with her and you know the the ever encroaching loss of her for quite a while um i suppose it's my cheesy attempt to memorialize my dog in some ways she's been a lot to me oh yeah she's been through a lot with you every story but She's been under my desk, or like I said, even now, she, she doesn't go under the desk because she's just so kind of getting decrepit. But she's, you know, she's never, I can always reach out and find her, even now. And uh, ever since, um, I've only done two stories. I've only, I've only written two stories professionally that she wasn't there for. And so all the rest. So she's been with me for almost 16 years, you know. Wow. So it's, uh, yeah, I think she's earned her spot. And I believe so, too. Um, but yeah, um, I, I appreciate how, uh, Isaiah Coleridge, his love for animals shines through as well, um, throughout the, throughout the novel. That's, um, um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, no, it's okay. Well, I was just going to say that it's really, that's actually harder for me to write about his love for animals in a it's not hard to write about like actually the physical act of it or the emotional. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's harder for me to balance that with him because I want Coleridge. I mean, the problem, the, part of the problem is if I were writing a straight literary novel, there are certain things I would do with Coleridge that would be different. In other words, if I didn't care, if it wasn't, if, if, if it were something other than a commercial novel, Coleridge would probably be a few shades darker than he is. So, but on the other hand, I didn't want to sacrifice, in other words, I didn't, but I didn't want to write a character just for the sake of writing a commercial novel who was just, oh, he's, he's a, he's a bad guy, but we all know he's not. He just, he only goes after the guys who deserve it. So he's not really bad. That's a, to me, that's one of the big downfalls of popular, um, anti-heroes is that you find yourself rooting for them when it hasn't been, you know, earned type of thing. I mean, uh -huh. to, to, so I, I need to balance that. And so one of the reasons that I have him uh, enjoy, you know, the company of animals and be, have a soft spot for him, I want it to be reasonable. Like it's, it's not a spoiler to say that part of the reason that this novel kicks off the way it does is because he interrupts, I mean, it's on the, it's on the jacket copy. There's a walrus slaughter and he doesn't, he's not down with it. And he, he reacts violently and he gets, you know, he stops, puts a stop to it using his skill set. And, but, but the reason I did it though, had very, it's kind of elided in the novel, but my justification for it or my rationalization had less to do with this will make him sympathetic. Although I think it does. I think having him at least like animals is sort of a necessary element to have him be at least remotely sympathetic. Like it's okay if he's, if he's down on people, but he has to like something. What is it a kid that he likes? Does he like, does he like dogs? What is it? You have to give him something that other people can relate to. Otherwise, what are you doing? It's a literary novel. Yeah. You know, it's a character, it's, it's, it's a character study only. No, but part of the reason that he reacted so violently to the um, walrus slaughter, because he likes to eat meat. He's not, he's, he would probably put Minerva in harm's way if he had to. He's, he's very pragmatic. It's just that there's this idea that in our culture, uh, we glorify conspicuous consumption. And I don't think this is like something that necessarily he would be that he would be on a higher level thinking about, but just I think internalizing this. I mean, the guy's not a dummy; uh, he's a college-educated man. And I think the 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 idea that we uh, the golden arches, for example, are kind of almost like an altar for us in a lot mm -hmm. of Americans in a way. We have eating con. I mean, other parts of the world are starving, and we're and we're celebrating an eating contest, right? Glorifying so, our gluttony. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We're not satisfied just to be gluttonous. We, we have to give you a prize if you're really gluttonous. And I think the conspicuous consumption aspect, you know, the slaughter, basically when it, when it, when it intersects um, violence, when it intersects brutality, it was too much for him. I think, I think that was a contradiction that was just, was just a little bit too far. It's one thing to go put other mafiosos into the ground 
they know the rules. You're all playing on the same rule set. We don't have any, we don't have any deal with them. Uh, we kind of have a stewardship pact with animals, whether you're religious or not. We all are kind of on some level, we've been taught that we're stewards of the environment. We're stewards of, of the natural creatures that dwell within the environment. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be a hippie or a bleeding heart to on some level sort of internalize the fact that, well, even if it's for mercenary reasons, we should husband our resources to some, we don't squander resources. I mean, the Native Americans, they killed buffalo left and right, but yeah, they had this but, attitude, you use every part, right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not wanton. And I think the wantonness of the, of the brutality was too much for him because he even says it, he goes, you know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't kill people because it's fun. He does it because it's sort of like, once you start, you're, you're with the mafia, you're, you're not with the mafia. And if you're not with the mafia, you're dead. Or in his case, luckily, lucky enough to be exiled, but also, um, he wasn't doing it for the joy of it. He was doing it because it's a job and it's and one that he happens to be particularly good at. Everybody's good at something. And he found out that he's very good at, at uh, pressure situations. So this was, this was just something it, it had less to do with. In other words, it had, so it had far less to do with all oh, these poor fuzzy creatures are being hurt. It struck a much deeper, there's something much deeper and more of it, uh, primordial going on with him. There was like just something inherently wrong and, I, you kind of he kind of explores that in both the, the the books that I've turned in, you know that he's still that's still going on. The aftershocks of that are still going on in book two. It's not yeah. as it's not as directly referenced, but that's one thing about the series is a lot of series are very episodic. I've read Spencer and love Spencer, and sometimes Spencer will talk about oh this case that happened a while back, but Spencer you know doesn't really bear the scars in the same way that a regular person would. Coleridge bears the scars. You're going to see. You know, if this book goes, let's say, let's say if the series goes 10, Coleridge will be a different person physically and mentally at book 10 than he was in book one. Well, with this, with as much uh, bruising and battering that he gets along the way, I can't understand how someone could have that supernatural ability to heal right. completely. Well, that so. it would never catch up with. See, this is the, the one of the themes in Coleridge is, well, I've actually experienced in my own life, not to the degree that he is, but like I've been hurt severely, probably worse in some ways than as described with him in the book. I've, I've been run over by a tree, you know, logs rolled over me. I've been stomped by moose. I've had all kinds of bad things where I thought I was fine, you know, beaten up <laughs> for a few weeks, you know, like literally limping around with a disc bulging in my back like this. Oh, God. But, but you don't know how bad it is until years later. Like now I'm suffering. Now I, I mean, I am half physically, I'm half who I was 20 years ago. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, a lot of things seem to bounce off Coleridge in book one. Book two, the bounces aren't quite so bouncy. And if, the, if there's a three, four, five and onward, there's going to come a point where, um, and this is something I'm excited to explore. It's like Coleridge is not. He, this all It's the idea that everything catches you sooner or later. His past catches up to him. Uh, in more ways than one. And I, that's something that I'm, I'm kind of excited about doing a series like this. I'm excited to read it. And that's a definite. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a fast paced read for me. And uh, I think I devoured it in five, six hours. Wow. So, I mean, I, mm, it, it, it was it was an excellent read, and thank you for entertaining me. I, you know, I'm thank you so much for telling me that. I've actually gotten quite a bit of feedback that people read it, you know, in a couple sittings or three, you know, in other words, they read it over a weekend easily, and that was the idea. It's not a short book; it's not huge, but it's over eighty thousand words. I mean, it's a regular mm -hmm. sized book, but and this I've never tried this before. If you've read my short fiction, a lot of my short fiction is like. 30,000 words and there's four paragraphs. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very dense. Uh, yeah. you know, and you have to go back and read stuff and, and things like that. I really set out to make this, I hoped something that you would want to keep reading. You know, you fought, you read five chapters because they're short. The chapters are very, very short. I was hoping that it would pull people along. And so far, a lot of people have said that they they've said, you know, if nothing else, they've said, man, I, I burn, I burned through it. And yeah. so I said, all right, I, I I did it. I succeeded in that regard. Excellent. Yes, she did. That is, it is a page turner. Um, if I, I'm just going to say that to anyone watching, if you have not gotten it yet, get it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes.
um, please do. So, uh, man, so the book tour, tell me about the book tour. Well, <laughs> pardon me, I've got my allergies. I'm, for anybody um, that is tuning in, I'm in the uh, Mid-Hudson, Upper Hudson Valley of New York State. Um, the Catskills are just north of me, about 10 miles, actually. So I'm in a little farming community. And where we're living, there's huge sycamore trees all around the property. And I'm very allergic to them. I love them, but I'm allergic to them. So I'm sitting here this whole time we're talking, and <laughs> my throat's killing me. But um, the tour was great. Uh, you know, I'm very lucky to get one, especially as a first time. Obviously, I'm not a first time author, but I may as well be for New York Publishing. And so it was a lot uh, of confidence on their part and a lot of support to send me out. And so I went to uh, Poison, the Poison Pen in um, Arizona, which was all of them were awesome. So I went to the Poison Pen and I, I spoke with Robin Bursell, who has been co-writing uh, with Clive Cussler on one of his series. And so she interviewed me. That that seems to be kind of the format, actually, with the bookstores now. Sometimes you read, but other times you do um, a, kind of like a you, you talk with the audience or you talk with the host and you talk with the audience. That was a lot of fun. And then I went to uh, Book People uh, in um, Austin, and that was a blast. And then uh, the third place I went to when they sent me on the tour was uh, in Houston, and I went to uh, Murder by the Book. And that was a lot of fun. And then in New York City, I was at, uh, I signed a bunch of books and talked to people at uh, the Mysterious Bookshop. And so those were the those were the main places that I went. And then I went to Providence. I'm going back to New York City next, at the end of this month. Um, we're gonna read it, uh, McNally Jackson with the aforementioned uh, Paul Tremblay. Mm -hmm. I believe Nadia Bolkin, Livia Llewellyn and John Langan. I think that's everybody. Awesome. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago it was, um, it was Michael Sisko, John Langan, and I were at um, uh, the, the the Lovecraft Science Council bookstore. So it was it was a blast. It was really hot. Uh, it was like about a hundred degrees everywhere. But they put me up in really nice hotels, and uh, they actually had cars take me places. It was a really it was nice. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I I've done tons and tons of bookstore readings over the years, but usually as part of a group. You know, type of a thing. This was this was kind of my first experience. I mean, locally, John Langan and I have read at Inquiring. Uh, there's this really wonderful bookstore called Inquiring Minds in Saugerties and New Paltz. And so we've headlined that. But um, this was my first time going like on a major trip where it was just me, you know, me or or me and a host. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a lot of fun. It was my first commercial book. So I had a lot of books to sign uh, stock that they had. All the, the bookstores had tons, like boxes and boxes of of blood standard i gotta tell you as somebody who's you even with skyhorse is just used to you know um if you go to a bookstore you sign a dozen books or something this was you no know, this is a whole different this is a whole different level oh wow yeah and a yeah. lot of my i will say this before i forget a lot of my fans turned up at each one of these things and my fellow authors and i really i super appreciated um i, I don't want, i'm not even going to name anybody because i i would forget people but i will just say i really some of those guys are going to watch the show. I just really appreciate them coming to the and supporting me. And I really appreciate my fans who came like, and uh, when I was in Houston, people, fans had come from uh, like New Orleans to come see me. They'd driven all day to come, to come to the show. So that, that means a lot. I mean, that's, you got to get paid so you can keep doing it. But part of the reason you do it, I think a big reason for me is just that they love when people love your stuff enough or your stuff means enough to them that they'll drive, because they had all my stuff, you know, they brought a couple boxes of everything that I'd ever done. Wow. I signed it. That is, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to put that into words, but it really is. Um, it justifies, it, it justifies a lot of the, a lot of the grind of writing a lot of, you know, cause writing is not, as you know, writing is lonely a lot of the times. It's not, and it's certainly not a lot of fun, but that really does. You, you forget all those hours you put in. Cause I looked at all those books, you know, I'm going, man, that's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of my life. There are vacations. There are ex-girlfriends and wives in that pile of books <laughs> and dead dogs. And I mean, you name it, just lost a lot of lost history because you're hunched over a keyboard doing that. It's really nice that it meant something to somebody else. That's got to be a hot. I, I would imagine. I can only imagine that it would be a very humbling experience. And I mean, as when, I mean, even with this, uh, 
podcasts. Like when I went to Necronomicon the last time, I was approached by fans. And, and I mean, yeah, uh, gotta love you guys. Um, so It's wonderful though, because it means something to them. Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're talking about, there's one level where people buy your book and you're really grateful for that. And they may have said, hey, well, you gave me a few hours. You know, I got my five hours, so yay. But, but I, and that's and that's wonderful. I wouldn't have a I wouldn't have a, a writing career if not for everybody doing that. It's just that there are some people where your work, you know, you're not just one of a bunch of authors they like, but they're you know you're like one of their very favorite writers, or some of your work really got them through a bad time or something. Yeah. You know, I have to say that's the part of my career so far um, that really is becoming like maybe my favorite part of my career, and that is somebody will email me or write me a letter or send me something and say, yeah, I got divorced a couple of years ago and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was reading Occultation, which is sort of the relationship horror and all our collection. And, you know, it was so, it was so nice to have these people having way worse problems than <laughs> I was to basically follow, you know, or I, or something bad happened. And I was at a, I was in a hotel or a motel in the desert and I was reading uh, Occultation, which takes place in the motel in the desert. And I was like, you know, that's like one of my favorite stories now type of thing. And I, it means a lot. It really does. I've gotten kids, you know, kids, you know, teenagers are starting to email me and say, you're the first horror novelist I've ever read. Or, you know, my, my dad told me I should read you or something like that. Or my, usually my evil uncle said you should read this guy. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. But uh, that's become my favorite part of, I think, it, you know, um, you know, uh, emotionally, spiritually, that's become sort of like the big payoff for me. Besides just getting money to survive, the actual payoff is that you affect people in a meaningful way. And I'm starting, you know, I've been around long enough. I'm starting to see that. I really, I gotta tell you, it's, it, it makes a lot of this really worth it. Absolutely. It does, man. Um, now before, before <coughs> we depart, um, is there anything else that you would like to add? Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you about? No. Um, I don't, I'm not off the top of my head, because some of the things I would have been interested to find out is, plot points but we can't talk about those because it'll give away the <laughs> I, I, so all i would just say is you no know, and you got me talking about to me i was able to mention a few writers that i'm reading or and people that i really admire but also you know i like to be able just to say this is this whole experience the last couple of years is really going out on the road and stuff is just you know I, I i always knew i had fans but it's just nice i mean like i said people coming from across state lines to come see me I just realized, you know, and it was very low key. It's not, you know, this is not Neil Gaiman level, nothing like that. But it's just, it's really, it's really was heartwarming. And so I'm glad that I was able to talk about that, talk about my dog. The only thing I would say just is, you know, um, I have another, you know, go out and get this one if you like it. There's another one. It's called Black Mountain and it's coming out next year. And um, I'm, I'm working get on. Rex. What's that? <laughs> I said, good old Rex. Um... <laughs> All right. Well, I, actually, I'm, I'm working on a handful of, of actual horror stories for various editors. I'm, I'm in between novels. I'm getting ready to start another novel. I've actually got it sketched out. And um, I've got another Coleridge novel sketched out. And I have a horror novel. I've got tons of ideas for both of them, but I have I have those two novels sketched out. And uh, depending on what happens, I'll be working on one or the other here real soon. But uh, I'm working on a bunch of very various lengths of short fiction. I'm working on a novella some novelettes and then, and then some shorter pieces that are all in the weird that hopefully if they, you know, if they make it, they've all been solicited. So if they make it, you'll, you'll be seeing, I didn't have much out last year or this year, but hopefully next year you'll see in the next year, you'll see like seven or eight more stories. Excellent. Um, will, will this be through uh, any specific publisher that we should keep an eye out for, or will uh, this be in various anthologies that anthologies. you have been solicited? Okay. Right. So I can't, you know, for multiple reasons, I can't say some of them Understood. will be advertising, you know, if they buy my stuff. But, you know, I, I never want to presume. I will say I have enough material already to do at least one more collection. I have, ton, you know, if I were to drop dead at the keyboard, John Langan or somebody could scrape everything together. and I'd have another another pretty long collection. So this is all stuff that nobody's seen. So hopefully, okay. um, you know, and, and hopefully there'll be a new collection in a couple of years. I'm, I haven't. I've had, the reason I'm bringing it up is it actually has been asked quite a bit lately. Like, well, it's been a couple of years. You got another one next year. I'm like, no, nope, the earliest would be 2020, but 
uh, when it comes, there'll probably be two of them coming or, or one gigantic one. So we'll see. By the time 2020 comes, I would probably have, I, I'm guessing I'll have almost a quarter million words that I could put into short fiction, which would be, I would never do that in one book, but if I did, it would be a Stephen King. <laughs> yes. It'd be The Shining, you know, basically. Yeah. And, and speaking of King and the genre swap that you have done, it seems that there's a little bit of a, uh, a trailing along there. Well, everybody's trailing along Stephen King, but yeah. Uh, although, I, you know, the thing is, he's done it. Um, he did it with the Colorado Kid, he did it with Joyland. Mm -hmm. He's I, way farther back. I mean, different seasons is actually, with the exception of the breathing method, which I guess could be supernatural. He's been, you know, he's been spreading his wings for years. I mean, he, he felt confined, not by writing horror or supernatural horror, but by being designated as this is all you can do. And I think he set out to prove everybody wrong with the oh, Bachman. Yeah. Like with the Bachman books, right? I mean, so he's always been messing with that. I will say though that I didn't, I wasn't consciously emulating King. It, it had more to do, although why? I mean, it's perfectly fine, right? But it had more to do with, you know, wanting to just that I grew up reading Hemet and um, John D. McDonald and um, oh, um, then the westerns like Max Brand, all this stuff, you know. Uh, um, oh, Parker. And I just said, you know, I want to do one of those. Maybe, maybe do a few of those. I would love to write a traditional, you know, do my own thing with it, but write some traditional crime or thriller or mysteries. I, I'm a big Martin Cruz Smith fan, so I, I really would love to try my hand at doing. And maybe Coleridge kind of skirt in the second book. Uh, it kind of flirts with that thriller, sort of the uh, high concept thriller. But the point is, is uh, it had more to do with me going. I want. I, I sure would like to do my Martin Cruz Smith novel someday, or my Robert B. Parker novel. Understood. Understood. Um, now, I'm I'm just very tempted to to end the interview so I can talk plot points with you. Okay. <laughs> and and I feel terrible for my personal desire to do so, but I know that that you also you may have a time constraint as well, and I I don't I don't know if you do or if you do not. No, no, I don't have a time constraint. I'm fine. Okay. I budget. When I do an interview, I budget a couple hours, you know, because I figure sometimes I ramble. So there you go. No, no. You're, you haven't rambled at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, I must admit that uh, the interviews that I've had with not only you, but with other authors, uh, it's, it's been a learning experience for me as well not only for those listening, but for me, I'm paying attention to what the words that you say. Oh, and, go ahead. Yeah, and, and thank you again for taking the time just to, to speak with me and, uh, and all of us here at Legends of Tabletop, which would be two other people that are me. But that's well, it's, okay. my, it's my honor to come on. Thank you very much, Larry. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.